All right, let's get started. For the next four weeks, we're going to be focused on funding your nonprofit. We've alluded to this, but now we're going to dig into you're starting a nonprofit or you're running a nonprofit. How do you fund it? And there's three primary areas. First is the government is a huge funder of nonprofits, but certain types of nonprofits. And then private donors is another big section. So you have individuals and corporations are the types of private donors. And then you have earned income. And earned income is any types of fees for services. So if you provide goods or services and people pay for them. So the best example would be like universities are nonprofits. They have earned income from tuition. So basically, as a student, you're involved in a nonprofit and you pay the university your tuition fees. And so that's earned income. Other examples would be the goodwill. The goodwill gets donations. People go into the goodwill and buy the clothing, buy the furniture, and that's earned income. So oftentimes we tend to think nonprofits don't make any money, they don't charge anything. But you'll see that a large majority of them actually have models in them. So schools and universities definitely do, but other goods and service providing nonprofits also have an earned income model. And then social entrepreneurship is the third one. It's also earned income, but it's on a whole other level. And it's sort of these hybrid models or these low profit organizations where it's a mix between actually being a for-profit and a non-profit, so it's a business, so like the Tegu company, they're actually a for-profit business, but with a social mission, social cause. Anyways, we're gonna be talking about these four. I get the joy of talking about the government, which is the least interesting, but we have three guest lecturers who will be coming in who are excellent. So the private donations ones is the head of SPIA's fund development, and so she used to be the head fund developer for Stonebelt, so she has experience with that part of the nonprofit sector, and then she just recently took the job here at SPIA, and so she'll be talking extensively of how do you attract private donors, both corporations and individuals, and then earned income, Professor Al Lyons, his specialty is on these types of organizations of how do you help whatever organization you're starting, how do you translate that into a model where you can generate revenue? This is his bread and butter. And then the last one is Les Linkowski, who I don't know if you remember reading in the book, The National Community Service. It's the big national government organization where Teach for America and VISTA and AmeriCorps He's basically the guy who started that. So he was working in the Bush administration. Bush tapped him to say, let's, let's ramp this up on a national scale. And he retired, and he's moved to Bloomington. He's an adjunct professor at SPIA, just sort of living the good life. And his focus is going to be on social entrepreneurship because that's what this national initiative was. But the key with him is if you like what he says and you have ideas, he'd be a great person to network with. So if you're serious about your nonprofit or serious about getting into the sector, pay attention to what he says because you can make get ties with him and he's great at networking you with people in DC or people around the country that are in this field of, of social entrepreneurship. Let's give you a glimpse of where we're going. And like I said, I get to talk about the government. So this is 2011 data on sources of nonprofit revenue. So these are all the nonprofits in the country, and this is the breakdown of where their money comes from. And if you look at this, what things stand out to you as you look at the sources of revenue for nonprofits? Yeah. One category makes up more than half of the circle. 
Okay. And so that's fees for services. Is that surprising to you, or? I guess it just depends on the organization, but it does kind of make sense because, like, every nonprofit has to have some sorts of revenue. I don't know, like, how feasible it is just to survive off of like donations from private contributors or anything. Sure, but. On average, a lot of nonprofits, especially the I'll say the mom and pop local level nonprofits, don't charge any fees. Like you know, Hoosier Hills or Middleway House or those organizations, from my understanding, don't charge anything. It's not completely uh, reflective of the field as a whole. Those fees for services overwhelmingly comes from universities and hospitals. Those are both nonprofits that you don't necessarily think of as nonprofits. But they are, and they charge tuition, and they charge hospital fees. So when you go to the hospital, you're paying. So let's say we took Hoosier Hills or any other individual nonprofit, their breakdown of funding sources would be different than the field as a whole. But this gives you a sense of the field as a whole. Any other things that stand out to you or that are surprising? All of the more people contributing from private contributions. So it seems lower than what, and that includes both organizations, you know, so you think like Google makes donations or Microsoft. So that includes not only individual donations, but also corporate donations. And in fact, individuals end up contributing more to the nonprofit sector than corporations. Even though we think, we hear of like Chevron making a huge donation, but then think about it, you have 300 million people in the U.S. and if they're donating even just a thousand dollars in a given year in total, it, it adds up to more. Yeah. It's weird to me that there's not an in-kind section. So a lot of companies, especially nonprofits, get a lot of their donations through in-kind, in like your materials or it's labor that's been done and stuff like that. And I don't see why there's not a yeah, revenue field for something they're not having to put out. Finance. My guess is that it'd be other, because even when I make an in-kind donation, like let's say I donate my car to NPR or something, where they have that thing where you donate your old car, a used car, there's a monetary value associated with that. So even in-kind gifts get monetized into right, an amount. Right. So it could be a private contribution. Does that make sense? No, it totally makes sense where it but could it, be, you're saying but it I just don't understand why it's not broken separately. Yeah. Because they, well, they're legally looked at differently now, and it's a different form of financing. Sure, it's a di yeah, different type of gift. Yeah, right. I think that that's why it's not on here is because it's an asset. It's not an actual revenue-based like money, and this is what it's actually looking at is like tangible money through there, and that would be a separate category within the assets of the actual. Sure, because sometimes people donate buildings, or even I think of like churches would say, hey, you can use our facilities Monday through Friday for your preschool that you have, but that wouldn't show up here, but it would certainly help the organization. Part of it is just knowing the landscape and where this money is allocated. Uh, in terms of government support, when you think of the government, what are the things, the goods and services that the government provides to us? So we pay taxes, the government presumably provides us things in return. Think of all the different things that the government provides. Yeah. Law enforcement. Okay, so law enforcement. Transportation, like roads and okay. bridges. Yeah. Public education. Okay, public education, mainly like K through 12. It's interesting, it stops at 12th grade. Like, there's state universities, but it's much different than public schools. Yeah. Social security. Social security. So retirement benefits. So yeah, parks or, or public spaces, you know, uh, libraries. 
would be another thing that the government provides. Yeah. Yeah. Welfare, social welfare programs would be another thing that the government provides. So, in a sense, the government makes a commitment saying, okay, we're going to provide transportation infrastructure, so roads and public transit, so like the bus system and things like that, public schooling. But then there's other things that they say we're not going to provide. We're going to either outsource it or it's not a responsibility of the government. Can you think of any examples where the government used to provide it, but then over time they stopped? I think universities, they used to be a lot more paid for, like my parents paid, like what worked through college, and yeah. that's like not anywhere close to Okay, I decline. So like I know Indiana, I think it's 12% of IU's annual budget comes from state dollars. And even like University of Michigan, I think it's only 4% come from state dollars, and so the University of Michigan is making this push to actually become private. To say that we're a public university is a misnomer because 96% of our funding comes from private sources. Only 4% comes from the state. So yeah, that's one where it's the government is sort of pulling back. Yeah. Is public housing more privatized now since okay. Truman's urban renewal? Yeah. It's still called public housing, but it's not run by the government. So the government still provides funding for it, but they're not managing it. And we're going to get into the differences between that. I mean, another one which will be interesting is the U.S. Postal System. So that's a publicly funded service, but it's one that its days are limited. It's interesting because it's been such a part of, you know, the government provision, and every home and residence has a mailbox, and that's federal property, but they're in a moment of crisis of like, well, what do we do? And we have competitors now who provide mail much more efficiently than we do. And this is a really taking a toll on us that we got to send out a postal carrier Monday through Saturday to deliver to every house, regardless of if they have mail coming or going, we still have to stop by. I don't know if you guys notice this. On Sundays, do you see U.S. postal carriers going around? Is that a little bit jarring for you? Or do you know why that is? Because like, they don't work on Sunday. Does anyone know why? So here's the reason. Amazon.com has contracted with the U.S. Postal Service. You know how Prime says guaranteed two days? So when you see a postal carrier on a Sunday, the only thing that's in their van is Amazon packages. So this is a government innovation to subsidize, you know, the U.S. Postal Service has a huge net loss. So if we think of government support, there's three categories. So there's some things that the government just does. They pay for it 100%, they manage it, like the highway system or law enforcement. But then there's a category of funding where the government funds and the nonprofits complement what the government does. The nonprofits use government funds to do activities that complement what the government is doing. And so examples of that would be a preschool. So Head Start program is something the government has said we value getting kids started in, in school early and having high quality preschool for the kids, but we don't want to take on the burden of starting up all these schools, so we're gonna give funding to these nonprofits so that they can run it for us. Probably the best example would be like hospitals. There are hospitals that are managed by the government, but most of them are like, think of St. Luke's Hospital, or other hospitals are run by nonprofits, maybe faith-based nonprofits or other health-related nonprofits, 
and they get their funding from the government. So the government says, yes, we want to provide health and human services to the public, but we don't want to be the ones to do it. We want other groups to manage it. So if your organization sort of fits under the umbrella of things that the government has said, yes, this is a, a public good, we don't want to personally provide it, we're going to donate to these organizations. So even a group like Planned Parenthood, you know, in this season, it's being recognized as something that the government values and something that the government wants to support. You know, pre-Roe versus Wade, Planned Parenthood wouldn't be funded by the government because they'd say, well, it's fine for them to exist, but it's not one of our priorities or values. Right now it is, and it's always under attack, and if you notice Planned Parenthood, most of the self-presentation of Planned Parenthood is that they provide health services to women versus we provide contraceptives or focusing on the pro-choice, pro-life. They focus more on the health and human services that they provide to women. But they do that because a lot of their funding comes from the government. So then when there's that scandal of what they were presumably doing that was unethical, they came under fire because it's like the people were saying, well, why is the government funding this? Why are my tax dollars paying for this? The general way to think about it is if your services or goods that you're providing fall under the umbrella of the things that the government is saying, yeah, this is a public good, this is something that should be available to everyone, then there's a good chance that you can get government funding. So even like if you want to open up a park, say your local neighborhood association wants to open up a park, parks are something that the government sees as a public good and there's grants that you can apply for. So you could get a donation from a private sector person or you could get a donation from the government to build this park. The other way is things that supplement what the government does. So these are things that the government basically said, we're fine if these things exist, but we're not going to pay for them. Probably the best example would be religion. The government says it's fine for these to exist, we're just not going to use public dollars, uh, tax dollars, to pay for these things. Or even there's things that are shifting from complementing to supplementing, like one would be the arts in general. So the government on some level says, yes, the arts are a public good and it's something that we should use tax dollars for, but it's not as good as we used to think it was. The amount of public dollars we're going to allocate to the arts is dwindling. And so it's moving more into the category of supplementing what the government is doing. So it's basically, you have a group of people who sit there and say, you know, the government doesn't really care much about the arts, and so we need to start up, you know, these arts programs, and so then we need to find private funds to get this working, because the government's not going to do it, so we're going to supplement what the government is doing by doing it on our own, and so you have to rely on private funds to get that money. Other things would be even uh, universities, you know, as we talked about, not only tuition dollars, but research. So government is giving less towards covering our tuition expenses, but then if, if I'm doing research, there used to be a ton of government-provided research grants because the government valued doing academic research, uh, whether it be medical re research or social-related research, and they pulled back on that such that they're basically saying it's more in the supplement category, and in order for me to do research, I need to go find private funds, or in order for you guys to pay your tuition, you need to find private scholarships, whereas before, public dollars paid a higher percentage of, of your fees and tuition. So there's complementing types of activities, supplementing activities, and then the last category of nonprofits would be those that challenge the government. 
So they're actually holding the government accountable to its activities. So these are like advocacy organizations, organizations like Amnesty International or the Sierra Club or Greenpeace or the Human Rights Commission, like different organizations where the focus is actually advocating for certain policies or certain initiatives to be passed or to hold the government accountable with regards to like environmental policies. And so the government's not going to support that, you know, because, and that's where even like we talked about the 501c4s, like these are groups that are set up to lobby the government. So it makes sense that it wouldn't be something that the government funds. But the government does monitor their activities. So, you know, the things with foundations, if they verge into the arena of advocating and lobbying for certain policies, the government's going to monitor that and regulate it and make sure that they're doing things that are consistent with their charter and with their sources of funding and with their tax benefits that they get. So every nonprofit fits into usually into one of these three categories. And if you think of your nonprofits that you're starting up, which of these three categories does your nonprofit fit into? So then if you think about government funding in general, I think someone mentioned that it's a smaller proportion than what you expected. So if you go on to Socrative, over the last 25 years, government financial support to nonprofit has increased, decreased, or remained the same. Okay, so the people who say decreased, what's your metric for that? What do you point to when you say that? See, I feel like a lot more private organizations and corporations are um, taking over like the donations towards nonprofits as a way to almost market themselves as like uh, okay. good and like interesting. Sure, so like the socially responsible yeah. so I feel corporations. Like sort of taking over where the government would be. The quick history is that in the 1960s with Lyndon Johnson and the war on poverty, that's when government spending on social goods really increased and government programs increased tremendously. And then you go up to the point of Reagan, 1980s, and basically Reagan said, you know, Reagan's Republican, small government, and basically where the government's too top-heavy, like there's too many things that the government is doing, so let's stop doing a lot of these things. Even things like, they would think, how can they do that? Like with prisons, you know, you think prisons and law enforcement are state-run, run by the government, but those are being privatized to where private companies are running prisons. And so when you're providing a service for profit, you want to have customers. You know, think if you have a hotel, you want to do things to have people come to your hotel and stay at your hotel. Well, if you're running a prison, you have an incentive to have people come to your prison. And so it creates a really conflicting situation in regards to the general privatization of activities. And so a lot in the 80s was outsourcing things that were traditionally done by the government to nonprofit sector or to the private sector. It doesn't mean that the government stops paying for it, but they fold back such that they weren't responsible for the day-to-day -day management of it, and it's actually much more cost-effective. But the long-run thing is that government spending, even accounting for inflation, has actually remained the same. Now, it's more complicated because the U.S. has grown over time, and so maybe those dollars aren't going as far as they used to, but on the whole, government spending has remained the same, even though the perception is that it's gone down. It's really where the money is going. So before, it was all managed and run by the government. And now what they're saying, and this is what we'll get into, is 
they're actually taking money and giving it to other people to run the programs so that they're not burdened with the management of it and the human resource element of it. Like they can just basically say, here's something we value, you go and do it. The example would be grants. And again, this goes back to where the government is a donor. So you're a nonprofit that does something that the government wants you to do. You apply for a grant. You say, hey, we're an organization that does this. Can you make a donation? That's a way to think about grants. And that's pretty much a straightforward, like we're most familiar with that. The other example would be, our other type of funding is this cooperative agreement. And so the one that I know of is that with academic research, like the NSF, National Science Foundation, often enters into cooperative agreements with universities. So if they want to do medical-related research, they have a team at the NSF who does medical research, but they want to partner with university hospitals to conduct the research. And so they enter into a cooperative agreement with the nonprofit. The government is a partner with the nonprofit in providing the services. The third one is uh, contracts. So you hear about government contracts. So a good example would be Highway 37 that they're building. Government's in charge of transportation, but the government doesn't have, doesn't hire their own engineers and their own workers to do it. They actually have contractors, so engineering companies that actually build the road. So the people out there building the road are not government employees, they're employees of a private company, and that private company has received a contract from the government to build the roads. And so then there's all this controversy, like the government hasn't paid the contractee or the, the contractor who's doing the work, and so then the workers say, okay, we're not going to work on Highway 37 anymore, and so it's you do bids for contracts, so even when, when the government wants to build a building in town, like a new state house, they don't have builders on staff with the government, they contract it out. So if you're doing something that the government wants to get done, beyond just doing grants or cooperative agreements, you could actually get government contracts. And so even things like health and human services, you can be a contractor with the government. And so if you get a contract, that's actually better than a grant, because a grant is sort of a one-time, hey, we want to do this, can you fund it? A contract can be an ongoing thing. You know, the social services within this community, we're going to do it year after year. Another one is vouchers. So the voucher is unique in that rather than giving it to the organization, it's being given to the client. So if you think of food stamps, is probably a great example that rather than giving money to food pantries, the government gives money to low-income individuals, food stamps, that they can then go take to any type of organization. And the idea is that it builds a competitive market. So if I'm a grocery store owner, I want to do something to draw or attract food stamp customers or get people into my door. And so I'm going to make my business better or more attractive or more appealing. And so there's a, an incentive to win over those people with those food stamps. I mean, another example would be schools and the voucher system with schools. So some states, rather than paying tax dollars for public schools, you just get a voucher. You get, say, $5,000 that you can take. You know, your kid's going to school, you can take it and give it to whatever school you want. And so the school has to earn your business. And that's what universities do, but they're pushing that down in the public school system. So those are the four categories and these are all things that nonprofits do so it's things that they're complementing things that the government says we think is valuable 
but we want nonprofits to do it. Here's the different vehicles to actually get that money. Okay, well, let's jump into the elevator pitches, and we'll start with Team One. How you guys doing? My name is Josh. I'm with a company called Expand the Brand. We're currently looking for extraordinary, dedicated, and fun-loving volunteers that would love to join our company. As part of our company, we'll be working with heads of projects to further the success of a project. Jobs and tasks include promotion through social media, physical promotion mediums, and working closely with artists to promote their brand. If you are a volunteer, you will have the chance to get a paid position in the company. That's about it. Cool. Yeah. Team 3. Hey everyone, I'm Kinsey and I'm with Food Life. At Food Life, we plan to use volunteers in order to run a majority of our services. We hope to engage a wide variety of volunteers, old and young, through open call ads. We're going to accomplish this by reaching out to students at local schools to get younger volunteers. And then we hope to gain some older volunteers by posting ads in the newspaper. We feel that everyone could benefit from the diversity of our volunteers and we think that it just adds another level to the experience of working at Food Life. Team 4. I'm sure everybody can recall a time in their childhood when they were recognized for some accomplishment. Whether this was honor roll, a good grade on the spelling test, our organization, Imagination, took note of the lack of program services for children at the Middle Way House, specifically in confidence building in a time that can be rough, so rough. Thus, we created our organization to do just that. This is why Imagine Mission is seeking out the help of volunteers in the Bloomington community to help us provide a safe place for children to express themselves through art and allow them to grow during their stay in the Middle Way House. You can make a difference by volunteering as little as an hour and a half a week and dedicating your time on to working with these children to explore their talents. Um, we rely heavily on committed volunteers to achieve the position or the positive results in our workshops. We require, require only the mandatory training through the Middle Way House in addition to an interview so we can appeal to your needs and wants as well. We at Imagine Mission hope to allow you to impact children in our community by helping us um, prevent domestic violence and promote confidence. Team 5. If you've ever visited or volunteered in a developing country, then you know how hard it is for children and adults to get the right education live sustainable lives, and stay healthy. If you haven't, your chance is now. You can make a difference in the lives of the people in Nicaragua by joining with us here at Bluefield Academy. We plan to reach as many people in the community to come to our school that we build and get the education that they deserve. We will teach them the practical skills they need and create a community of educated people that demonstrates the knowledge, skill, and values required for a productive global citizenship. As volunteers, you will be helping make this happen. You will be working side by side with these students and being their teachers and role models. You would be motivating them to be the best that they can be and help them reach their full potential. You all have the ability to show them that they can go on to higher education to get better jobs and be more successful. Volunteer with us today to make a difference. Team number six. The Good Bar has a vision, a community in which the recently homeless and those who desire more than part-time employment are able to attain stable careers as a result of intentional professional development. 
Volunteers from within the Bloomington community make that professional development possible. Are you a business owner, a professor at IU, or a passionate employee with a desire to pay it forward? The Good Bar is the place for you to invest. Once a month, the Good Bar hosts a networking event for beneficiaries and mentors to come together. Volunteering with the Good Bar is mutually benefiting. You will empower people seeking stable careers by sharing your experiences and insights, but you will also expand your own network by meeting other local professionals with the same compassion for mentorship. And Team 7. Good morning, everyone. I'm here on behalf of PREA to talk to you about some of the volunteer opportunities we have available. We are looking for individuals who have a dedication for music, education, and working with children to find a new way for them to uh, learn at their own pace. So we are looking for volunteers to assist with our education. You'll be helping out the director in our group classes. You'll be helping with classroom management and even modeling on the piano. We have opportunities within our marketing department to help pass out posters and flyers and then also going to talk to schools to talk about recruitment and also getting them to come to our uh, concerts and everything. And then we also have internships within our administrative department to like help their day-to-day needs and these are all real-world experiences that will help you learn more about an arts organization and more specifically one that focuses on music education. Our children and education are the most important factors for us, so if this fits you in helping our children find their inner musician, please talk to me. Thanks. This is good. I imagine all of you have gotten a pitch yourself to volunteer for something, and so it's interesting being on the other side and saying, what's it like to give the pitch, and then even be sitting here saying, oh, how would you do it differently, or was that convincing? So, good job with the pitches. I'm gonna give some quick, quick feedback on the human resource plans. Most of this is in your notes, but a couple key things I wanna reiterate. Some of you conflated the idea of staff and volunteers, saying that you would pay your volunteers or that your staff would be volunteering and unpaid. In the nonprofit world, there's two distinct sets. There's staff or employees which are paid, the people you pay and you have to abide by the employment laws. And then you have volunteers which are completely not paid. And so you have two tracks. And so it's important to differentiate between those. A lot of you said we want a very diverse staff. So I probably wrote in there diverse along what dimension. So do you want it to be age diverse? Do you want it to be class diverse, racially diverse, gender diverse? So by just saying diverse, it doesn't cut it, because I don't know what it means. Uh, so I want you to be specific and sort of say, why would you want it to be class diverse, or whatever the, the diversity is? The best thing you can do, not only with the human resource plan, but with all of these plans, is have specific ideas. So the groups that got the best scores gave detailed specific ideas. So like with recruiting, some groups just said, well, we're gonna recruit broadly, and just left to that. Other groups gave specific examples, like we're gonna go flying around all the different businesses, we're gonna go on these social media websites, we're gonna go to these job postings and recruit people that way. Think creatively as you're putting stuff down, you're making it up, you're coming up with a plan, so if you were going to be recruiting, what would you do? Or if you were going to be motivating the staff or evaluating? Some of the groups said motivating, like we'll give them free tickets to a concert at the end of the year. You know, so come up with whatever you want as a way to motivate volunteers. Versus, with the second one, intrinsic motivation. Almost all of you said our volunteers will be intrinsically motivated. So our job is done. We don't need to motivate them. But I'm asking, what will you do as an organization to motivate them? 
just to hope that, well, they're just going to be intrinsically motivated, so they're going to keep doing it, isn't enough. So think of ways that, you know, like the awards that you give at the end of the year, or the appreciation gifts that you give, or uh, recognition, things that would motivate them to stay, continue to stay involved. And then also, like with evaluations, a lot of you said, well, we're going to evaluate our staff and volunteers, but again, if you give specifics, like, well, along what dimensions? We're going to evaluate their effectiveness in teaching students, or we're going to evaluate their effectiveness in doing the good bar mentoring, like have the mentees evaluate the mentors on their engagement and their professionalism, or whatever dimensions you think would be important. That is all. Have a good day. Good weekend.